0: This Mishnah is going to bring five different opinions for the minimum size of a field for it to be Chayev in peyah, And we're going to go from the largest size to the smallest size. So the first opinion, Rabbi Yezer says is that land which is the size of a base roiva, Chayev is obligated in peyah. A base Reva is the area of land in which a Riva, a quarter of a kav of seeds, can be planted. The exact measurements are 10 and a fifth amas by 10 and a fifth amas, which is equivalent to about 5 by 5 meters, or 15, 16 feet by six, 15, 16 feet. And that's the largest size land which you are going to have in our Mishnah. So Contribiliezer, he is the most lenient because he holds that any land which is smaller than that, the owner will not need to separate Peyar if he has such a small piece of land. Contribiliezer derives this from comparing Peyar to kilayim. Kilaim is the prohibition of mixing two different seeds together. There's a homosech to which we'll have later on in Seder Zeroyim. but the halach is that when it comes to Kelayim, for certain types of seeds, the area of a base roiva has to be left between the two seeds. And just like the Torah uses the word Sodeh, or Sodcha, your field, when talking about Peyah, the Torah also, when talking about Kelayim, uses the word Sodcha. So it says Lezer, just like over there, the size of the field is a base reva, so to here it's a base reva. Second opinion, Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Yeshua says, so The minimum is actually an area of land which will produce two so'ah of produce. So Rabbi Yeshua is not looking at it in terms of how many seeds you can plant there, rather by how much the field will produce. And Rabbi Yeshua derives this in a similar way, because elsewhere in the Torah, the Torah uses the word "sadeh," meaning field. So Rabbi Yeshua compares peyot to that. Now what is that? That is shikha. Shikkhah is something we're going to learn about later on in the Masechta, and that is when one forgets bundles, and he leaves them in the field, it's a mitzvah to leave those for the poor. Now the halachah is, if you leave a huge bundle in the field, then it's not considered to have been forgotten there, and therefore if it's a huge bundle, you're allowed to go back and take it for yourself, and you do not need to leave it for the poor. It's sort of considered its field in its own right. So just like over there, for the bundle to be considered a field in its own right, it has to be two sa'ah. So two over here, Alright, um, position number 3, Rebitarifin Omer, Rebitarifin says shishal shishat tefachim." the minimum is 6 by 6 tfachim, a tefach is the width of a hand, so this is an even smaller area, and Rebitarifin learns it from kilayim again, just like Rebliezer did, however there are other types of seeds which require 6 by 6 tfachim in between them, and on a base rova, so Rebitarifin learns it from there. Fourth opinion, Reb Yehudba Maseya Omer, Reb Yehudba says, It's got to be large enough that it requires you to do one act of harvesting and then do another one, to repeat that act of harvesting. The way they would harvest in those days was to hold on to some crop with one hand and then use the other hand to cut it. So if you're not able to hold onto the entire field in one go and cut it all in one go, then it's considered large enough that it will be and Peah. And this is quite a logical reasoning, because the obligation of payer is that when you harvest, you shouldn't reach the end of the harvest. You should start, but you should stop before the end. Now, if the end of the harvest comes together with the beginning of the harvest, then payer doesn't really apply. Because that would mean before you even start harvesting, you need to leave that part of the field. And therefore, only a field which you can both start and finish. Or rather, leave the Peyah there, only that will be Chayv and Peyah. And in fact, the Mishnah says, interestingly, The Halacha Gedvarav. The Halacha is like his words, that if it, if it requires two different acts of harvesting, then it is considered large enough to be Chayv and Peyah. Now, it's interesting, because the Mishnah very rarely tells us which opinion we hold like La Halacha. And the truth is, the Gemara says that we can't learn Halacha out of the Mishnah, even if the Mishnah tells us who the Halacha is like. Because the Gemara may decide otherwise. The Gemara may favour another one of the opinions. In fact, the Rambam actually Paskins not like this opinion. So even though the Mishnah does say that Halacha is like Rabbi ben Veseyrah, that may have been how it was decided during that time. But it is not definitive Halacha. And now we come to our fifth opinion, Rabbi Akiva Omer. Rabbi Akiva says, any amount of land, however small, however pe'ah is obligated in peya, Because according to Rabbi Akiva, any amount of land is considered a field. Now, because we mentioned that, we're going to mention a number of other things now, which have to do with land, And Rabbi Akiva is going to tell us that these things, too, require just the smallest amount of land. For example, over Bikurim. When it comes to Bikurim, which is the first fruit which ripens on one's tree, he needs to bring them to Yerushalayim, give them to the Kohanim. The Torah says, The first fruit of your land, which teaches that one is only obligated to bring Bikurim if he owns not just the tree, but the land on which the tree stands. So any amount of land which he owns, that's enough to make him obligated in Bikurim. And the next one on the list has to do with shmita. Every seven years, there is a year of Shmita where one is not allowed to work his field, and one of the aspects of Shmita is that as soon as Shmita arrives, anybody who owes somebody else money, that debt is cancelled and they no longer need to return the money. That's what the Torah says. However, Hillel saw that as it neared to the year of Shmita, people stopped lending other people money because they thought they wouldn't get it back. So Hill instituted the one could write a prusbel. A prusbel is basically a document which allows your loans not to be cancelled. The exact mechanism of how it works, we're not going to go into that now. The basic idea is that you give over the right to your loans to the basin. And since their loans don't cancel in Schmittar, so your loan now won't cancel in Schmittar. But be it as it may, a prusbel only works if the person writing it owns some land. The Mishnah says that any amount of land is enough, Velichthe Veleha Prusbel, to write a prusbel with that land. The land is not the loan. The land is just something which the person has to have in order to write the prosbol, and the mission is telling us that any amount of land is sufficient. Now, the final thing on the list has to do with kinyonim. Kinyonim are different ways to acquire something, and different items require different ways for acquiring it. For example, movable items, you can acquire by lifting up or by pulling towards you, whereas when you acquire land, there are three ways to acquire land. Number one, is by paying for it, number two is by using a document, and number three is by doing something in that property to show that you own it. For example, putting up a fence, locking the door, or another similar action. However, the halacha is that if you are acquiring from somebody both land and movable items, then whereas normally for the movable items you will need to lift each one up or bring it towards you in order to acquire it. If you're acquiring them along with the land, then just by doing the um, act of acquisition, just by paying for it, for example, you can acquire the movable items as well together with that. And you don't need to do a whole acquisition for each item. So in order to do this, how much land do you need to be acquiring with it? The answer is, any amount of land, even a tiny amount of land, to buy with that land um, movable items, movable property, by kesef, by paying for it a shtar, or with a document of a chazaka, or by showing ownership, which are the three ways to acquire land, you can acquire movable items together with that. Mishnah design, while we're on the topic of a tiny bit of land being sufficient, The mission is going to provide a few more examples of where this would be the case. Now the first one concerns a Shechiv Murah. Shechiv is somebody who is on his deathbed, he thinks he's about to die, and Midrab although in general one has to perform an action to acquire something, when it comes to Shechiv it's enough that he just say that I want my property to go to so-and-so, and so-and-so acquires that property even without performing an act of acquisition. The reason for this is so that the person who is very ill won't get very anxious, that his words aren't being fulfilled, which could bring his death closer, closer. So to avoid that happening, just him saying that he wants his property to go to somebody makes it go to him, and now that person owns the property. And the truth is, this only works if he actually dies. But if he gets better again and continues living a normal life, then the gift which he gave as a Shechiv will not be valid. Because we assume that he only gave it with the intention that this is being a gift because I'm about to die. So if he doesn't end up dying, then the original acquisition was not valid. So the Mishnah tells us, marah. one who writes his property to somebody else, he writes that he wants his property to go to somebody, and he is a Shechiv Marah. The truth is, he doesn't have to write it, he could just say, I want my property to go to so-and-so. And we're discussing a situation where after he said he wants the property to go to him, that person came and actually did perform an act of acquiring. You could look at this action as replacing what the Shechiv Marah said, or you could look at it as just strengthening the original speech which the um, Shechiv Merah said, you know, make it official, but in that case the acquisition actually occurred when the Shechiv Merah said that the property should go to that person. So how should we view this act? Says the Mishnah, <laughs> If he left over any amount of land or any movable items as well, the point is it can even be any tiny amount of it, if he leaves that not as a gift to this person, so he's not giving him everything, he leaves some for himself, and then the Shechiv Merah got better again. If a shechiv mara recovers, then an acquisition which he did via speaking is invalid. Because it was only valid if he ends up dying. So the only way for the gift to be valid is if the act which was performed was what did the acquiring. It replaced the speech. But if it was just making it official. So in that case, that cannot be something which acquires. So the mission tells us that since he didn't give over everything, that shows that he wanted to give it even if he wouldn't die. It shows that he gave the gift with the intention that even if he wouldn't die, it should go to this person. And therefore, his gift is valid, and we view the act which he performed as having replaced the speech and therefore it was a proper acquisition, so this person will get the gift. On the other hand, If he didn't leave over any land or any movable items for himself, so he gave over everything, that's showing that he only wanted to do so as a Shechiv Marah. And therefore, even the act of acquisition which he performed, we look at that as just making the thing which he said more official and formal. But not that it should replace the speech of the shechiv Marah. So because of that, Imam Tzad his gift is not a valid gift, again because we assume that he only gave it, with the intention that it should be valid only if he dies. The halacha is that when one marries a woman, he needs to write for her a kasubah, which is a document on which it states that if he divorces her, or dies before she does, then she will get a certain amount of money, and any land which he has is bound to that kasubah which means that she has a right to collect that value from the land. Now what happens if our LeChos Somebody writes his property for his sons, we're going to understand this to be referring to Shechiv Mera once again, he's on his deathbed, and he instructs that his property should be given and split between his sons. And whilst he does that, He also writes down, or he instructs, that a certain amount of land, even a tiny amount of land, should be given to his wife. And we're referring to a situation in which the amount of land which he gives to his wife is less than the value of her kasuba. And the rest of his property has now been given to his sons. However, that property is bound to her kasuba. If she does not allow that sale to take place, because she wants to take her kasuba from that land, then the sons do not acquire the land from their father. Now, in our situation, when the wife heard that the husband was giving most of his property to his sons, she was silent. She did not protest. And we view her silence as accepting and allowing the acquisition of the sons to go ahead. This is known as Shasika kohida'a, where we view someone's silence as agreeing. And therefore, ibda she is now lost out on her kasuba, meaning other than the land which the husband kept for himself, if he now dies or divorces her, she will not be able to collect her kasuba from the property which the sons now have. Now, if her husband gets other property in between then, then she can collect it from there. But in terms of this property which was just given to the sons, she can no longer collect it for the sake of her kasuba because it no longer belongs to the husband. Now, and Rabbi Yaisi says that in Kibla Leha, if she accepts this upon herself, and what this means to say is that even before the Shechiv mara gives his instructions, so if she accepts that and doesn't protest, then even if he doesn't write any land for her, we still view her silence as accepting this and allowing the acquisition of the sons to go ahead, and therefore Idba Kasubasa, she's lost out on her Kasuba, meaning that she cannot collect her Kasuba from that land. Mishnah Ches, if one owns a non-Jewish slave, an Evad Kanani, we view the slave as his possession, and in order to free him, the master, the owner of the slave, needs to give him a document which says that he is a totally free man. So HaKhaisi ibn La-Avday, one who writes his property for his slave. He writes a document saying that all my property I am giving to this slave, so like we said before, the slave is considered his property, and therefore he's in effect giving the slave himself, and Yotsub ben the slave goes out as a free man. However, if in the document he left out, he left over any amount of land, so he wrote, I'm giving all my property to the slave except for this land, or the same would apply to any items, he said except for another item, in that scenario, the slave does not go out as a free man. And the reason for this is because since the owner did not say explicitly and clearly that he is freeing him, rather we interpreted his words to mean that. In a scenario where he's not giving away all his property, we're not going to interpret his words as giving away his slave. We only interpreted it as that because we saw he was literally giving away everything. So we said, ah, we assume that he's also giving away his slave. But if he's already leaving bits back for himself, then we're no longer so sure that when he says I'm giving my property to my slave, he means to give the slave to the slave, and therefore he does not go out as a free man. Now a consequence of this is that the rest of the property also doesn't go to the slave. Because it's a concept of Masha Kona Eved Kona Rabbi. Whatever a non jewish slave owns, or acquires, the slave's owner acquires. Because since the slave is his possession, so anything owned by the slave is really owned by the master. So since the slave doesn't go free, that means that the rest of the gift of all of the possessions also remains in the master's possession. However, Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Shimon says, Really, he is a free man, because just because this person said that I'm keeping this land for myself, doesn't mean he's keeping anything else for himself. It's only the land which we exclude from the gift. But everything else, including the slave himself, we assume is part of the gift and therefore the slave gets himself back, as it were, and is a free man. But says the Mishnah, unless he says, all my property should be given to so-and-so, my slave, except for one ten-thousandth of the property. In that case, even Ruby Shimon agrees that he does not go out as a free man. The reason being, though we're not sure which one ten-thousandth he's referring to. And it could be that he's referring to the slave. We don't know how much he values the slave as. Maybe the slave is very unimportant in his eyes, and therefore he values it very lowly. And the truth is, even if he does value his slave as more than that, it could be that the one ten-thousandth is a part of the slave, which he's leaving for himself. But like we said before, a slave can only be freed if he is totally freed. If you keep to yourself any part of the Ever, then the entire ever is still yours. So because of that, even Rabbi Shimon agrees that he would not be a free man, because it could be that the owner intends to keep the slave as his. Perik Dalad, the fourth Perak of Peir is the last Perak in the Masechta whose focus is the Mitzvah of Peir. The later Perikim will discuss other gifts for the poor. Now the first half of this paragraph discusses how exactly the poor people should access and take the payer. So firstly the mission introduces by telling us how payah is given whilst attached to the ground. The whole mitzvah of payar is to leave part of the field unharvested, and therefore ideally payah should be left there for the poor people to come and take away from the ground themselves. However, Badolis When it comes to a dolis, which is a grapevine, which is planted in an interesting manner, where it's not necessarily on the ground directly, although it grows from the ground, it's draped around other things, wrapped around trees, or on wood, over decal, as well as when it comes to a palm tree, on which dates grow. These two plants are difficult to access for the poor people. And since all the poor people are competing for the payer, meaning any poor person can come to a regular field and take the corner of the field, which the owner has left, and they get it based on a first-come, first-served basis. So when it comes to a palm tree, for example, if you have two or three people trying to climb the palm tree, that's very dangerous. So to prevent the danger, instead of leaving it there for the poor people to collect, Baal HaBayis the owner should bring it down, and then instead of just leaving it there for the poor people to compete over, he should actually distribute it equally, in equal portions to all the poor people who are present at that time. And the reason why I can't just leave it there is because he, if he has a particular poor person who is either related to him or who is his friend, he might try to purposely place the fruit near to him which is forbidden, he has to make it equal. He has to give all poor people an equal chance, and therefore instead of just leaving it there, he should give it out equally. Rabbi Shimon Shimon says, this system of the Bala of the owner bringing the fruit down, and giving it out, that applies to nut trees as well, which are very smooth. Because the trunk is very smooth, it's very difficult to climb, and therefore though it's less dangerous, and the other two plants we mentioned, it does still pose a lot of danger, and therefore the owner should be the one to sort out the payout in that scenario. Now when it comes to regular payout, the Torah gives a right to every poor person to however much peyar he manages to collect from the people's field, which means he could, that could be nothing, he couldn't end up with getting nothing because other poor people will get there first, or he could get everything there. He just has a right to whatever he manages to get. Now all the people who are present at a particular field, if they want to, they can all make an agreement together, then instead of fighting over who gets what, they're going to split it equally, among everybody who is there at that time. However, if there's one person there, who does not want to do this deal, then the deal does not work, and whoever gets it first takes the payer, or however much payer he manages to get. The reason being that he has a right to however much he manages to get, which could be the whole thing. So he cannot be forced to split it equally between the poor people. And a philutish and even if there are 99 poor people there who say that the owner should give it out equally, which is not what they usually do for normal payer. the Echel Emelovah is but one person says that they should grab it, meaning whoever gets it first takes it. We listen to that one person, because he says like the halacha, meaning he is saying what he is entitled to technically. And since he does have the right potentially to get all of the payah, he cannot be forced to do this deal, which is not the normal way of collecting payer.